We welcome you to Bible class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. Uh, to the, all those that are here and to those who are listening on KFUO. We are going to continue our study of Romans today at Romans chapter 4. Chapter 4. This particular chapter is certainly directed at a audience that has many uh, Jews, probably converted Jews, because the content of this chapter is going to be about Abraham. And of course, when any time you start talking to uh, converted Jews, uh, the topic of Abraham is very important. Uh, if you're teaching things about this Christian faith, and suddenly uh, they want to know how this related to Abraham long ago. And so uh, Paul is going to deal with that extensively here in chapter 4. So the first verse, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. All right, if you're saved by faith, then what did Abraham get out of this deal long ago? Now, we need to look at some of these words here because the actual... Uh, I don't know what many of your translations might say, but it says, when uh, then shall we say was gained by Abraham. The, the word is actually found by Abraham. And the tense tells us it should not only say found, but lived out by Abraham. What was found and lived out by Abraham? He's called our forefather. Remember, Paul was a Jew. And what's being emphasized here is the Jews believe that the important thing was descendants. They had to be descendants of Abraham. Now, Paul's going to turn that on its head before this is over. But our forefather according to the flesh. In other words, what did Abraham find and live out in his life as our forefather when he was in this world? That's the question that's being asked. Now, then the next verse, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. The words are actually, he has a boast. He has a boast. But not before God. All right. Some assumptions here. The assumption of the Jews was that Abraham was justified by works. Was justified by works. Now, what they would actually say was he was not specific works he did, but he was obedient. 
He was obedient. So when God said, go to a land you don't know, and I will make you a great nation, he obeyed. He obeyed. When God told him, take, uh, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him on the mountain, he was obedient. Now, they don't leave out the faith part, but they emphasize the obedience, the things Abraham did. So when it says, if Abraham was justified by works, that's calling it into question. He has a boast, but not before God. So, if he was, then he's got something to boast about. But basically, Paul is saying... He wasn't, okay? He wasn't. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, so we're going to talk about this. That is a direct quote of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. That's where it is. Genesis 15, 6. That statement was made about Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. Now, an important word here is the word counted. It's used several times in this chapter. Counted is a bank term. And what it's saying is that the, it is counted accredited to his account. Accredited to his account as uh, a deposit in a bank. So notice it was credited to him as righteousness. So what was his faith in the promises of God? His faith in the promises of God was counted to his account as righteousness. The righteousness that God provided, not the righteousness that he provided for himself through his obedience or his works. So his faith is counted for his righteousness. That is why we don't say you're made righteous. You're made righteous. Because you're not made righteous. We talked about this because you still sin. You are declared or counted as righteous. God declares it in spite of who you are and what you've done. So he counts your faith as righteousness in Christ. Justification. All right, now. Now he gives a purely secular example. Uh, this has no theological bearing. He's appealing to the people as uh, 
as a secular example. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's the way it is in everyday life. That's the way it is. You are paid for work. You are paid for work. And of course, his point is, if you're saved by works, you're saved because you're working. It's your due. It's not by grace. It is your due. Okay? You're due this because you did the work. Now, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The key word for us in this verse is the word ungodly. It's like Paul taking a hand grenade and throwing it in the middle of these people. Because if they are indeed, and we know that many of them were indeed Jewish converts, the concept that someone who is ungodly could be counted righteous is beyond their imagination. It's the same thing as me telling you uh, Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler could have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, are you sure? You really want to say that? To say that ungodly people can be declared right with God is a radical, radical statement to a group of even converted Jews. But, you know, many times we talk through Romans and we, we, uh, we'd like to say, well, what about Jesus? Did he, did he declare people righteous who were totally ungodly? And by the way, ungodly there means denies the existence of God. Well, as we look into the ministry of Jesus Christ, we see a number of examples of this. The Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus to heal her daughter that Syrophoenician woman, by definition, lived in an area that would have not proclaimed 
anything about the true God. Nothing. When the centurion came to Jesus and wanted his servant healed, he was a Roman. When Levi, the tax collector, came and Jesus called him, tax collectors were considered worst of the worst. When the uh, woman came and washed Jesus' feet in the Pharisee's house, uh, every implication was she was a woman of ill repute. When Zacchaeus, when he went into Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus was a known thief. So over and over again in Jesus' ministry, we see him dealing with people who would not be considered anything but ungodly. So what does he say to the woman who washes his feet in the Pharisee's house? Your faith has saved you. Declared righteous by faith. What does he say to Zacchaeus? Salvation has come to this house this day. He heals all those people that these folks came to see him about. You see, Jesus did the same thing. Jesus justified the ungodly. So what it's being, what's being taught here is the ungodly which for most Jews would just be considered any Gentile. Any Gentile. They can be declared right with God by faith. And that was radical. That was radical. One of the biggest flare-ups in the early church, the biggest fight was whether a Gentile had to be circumcised before he could believe in Jesus Christ. Paul's going to deal with that. But the fact is, Paul always says no, because God justifies the ungodly through faith in Jesus. So, uh, it's very clear here, and this is a radical statement, just remember that. I mean, we read over this and don't think too much about it. It is a radical statement. And then it says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The term blessed or blessing means the privileged recipient of divine favor. 
the privileged recipient of divine favor. Now, then, he quotes from Psalm 32. You see that indented section. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Okay. So, lawless deeds, sins, and notice the word count again. He doesn't count or accredit your sins to your account. He accredits righteousness to your account by faith. So your sins are forgiven. Notice it says whose sins are covered, and the word there means covered. Okay. The man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. As we discuss the whole term of justification and that term, we always say it's a forensic term. And forensic means courtroom style. And it's a declaration by a judge for you. So the judge, here, here you are. I used to paint this scene for the kids in confirmation. So you got a courtroom. Who's the prosecutor? Satan. Who's the defense attorney? Jesus Christ. Who is the plaintiff? You. Who or what? is the evidence, all your sins. The prosecutor says, look at all the sins. They, this person should be declared absolutely guilty. The evidence shows it. The defense attorney says, wait. He believes in me. He's my child. The one other person in the courtroom that's essential is the judge. It's Jesus. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. You know the judge. You know the judge. Now, the judge does not say not guilty because you are guilty of your sins. But his ruling is you are acquitted. There is no punishment for what you've done. That's the courtroom scene. Remember that courtroom scene and always remember you know the judge. You know the judge. So this term used over and over again, justification, 
is a forensic courtroom kind of term declaring what God says. Now, I want to pause here a minute and, and remind you of this. What matters is what God declares, not what we perceive. Now, let me say that again. What matters is what God declares, not what we perceive. Now, our perception in this world, and we perceive many things, but let's just talk about ourselves. Our perception in this world is uh, we're not what we ought to be. We are sinful people. We do make mistakes. We do hurt others. We don't really want to do many of the things God wants us to do. Our perception would be at times that we do something so bad, oh, God's not going to forgive this one. Or, or I've done this so many times, God's not going to forgive it. Our perception is not what God points us to. What God always points us to is what He says, what He declares. So we confess our sins, so we realize how sinful we are, but what matters is what God declares. Your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't try, don't try to salve your conscience yourself. It won't work. Not long term. The only thing that can clear your conscience is the Word of God that says your sins are all forgiven. Otherwise, you're going to have to keep coming back, reminding yourself of that. Because over and over again, you're going to think, well, that's not going to work. That's why over and over again, we need to hear the Word, your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. What matters is what God says, not what you perceive. Reality is what God says. Reality. Not what we make up or think Reality is what God says. That's the reality of the situation. And God says, 
your sins are forgiven. So that means you can walk out of here with a big smile under that stupid mask. You know, people ask me, how did they get you to come back and teach? I said, I'll be glad to because I'll get to spend an hour with church with no mask. So, God says your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake, and that's the way it is. That is reality, no matter what your conscience or the world or Satan tells you. That's the reality. All right, let me stop. Any comments, questions? Yeah, but that's right. Uh, he said that uh, this verse, verse 5, reminds him of the workers in the vineyard, the parable that Jesus tells. He went out, uh, you know, first thing in the morning and hired some guys, and then he went as late as where there was just one hour of work left. And when he paid them, he paid them all the same thing. People that got hired first, they were mad. They worked all day. People person that got hired last got the same amount. It's not based, counted as reward. It's grace. It's not based on the work you did. It's based on God's total grace. He just decides to do it because he loves you. The thief on the cross that spoke to Jesus, and Jesus declares, today you will be with me in paradise, he never had the opportunity to do one good work. If somebody ever says to you, who went to heaven without any good works? Thief on the cross. He didn't even have time to do one. We are saved by grace, through faith, for Christ's sake. And he can declare even a horrible person dying on the cross next to him, right with God, through faith. Right with God. Okay, we move on. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Okay. Uh, you can read it in the Bible. In chapter 15, verse 6, he says, Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Circumcision did not come until chapter 17. In chronological order, 
Abraham was declared right with God before he was circumcised. His circumcision was not something that he did to earn being declared right with God. He was circumcised before or after he was declared right with God. Now, and then here's the definition of circumcision. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision is a sign that you were right with God through faith. It was not a work. Okay? The church father Chrysostom puts it like this. Circumcision is ridiculous if there is no faith within. Circumcision is ridiculous if there is no faith within. And we talked about that when we talked about circumcision back in chapter 2. Because God always talks about it as circumcision of the heart. Okay? So... Abraham had faith in his heart before he was circumcised. He was declared right with God before he was circumcised. Okay. Now, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Another radical statement. Another very, very radical statement. Because the Jews used to love to say, Abraham is the father of the circumcised. And here Paul says just the opposite. He's the father of the uncircumcised. That would have been very radical. That declaration would have been very radical. Uh, and, and it's... Uh, it, it is just the opposite of what these people had been told all their lives. All right, so... And then it says, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, um, what's being said here is that you now have 
Paul making the case that whether you are godly or ungodly, whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised, all are made righteous, declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. So he is not allowing anyone to leave anybody out. The godly and the ungodly, the circumcised, the uncircumcised. By the way, nobody's born circumcised. All are declared right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. He's not leaving anybody out. Okay? Um, if you seek to be justified by the law, then it closes the door on the gospel. If you are justified, declared right with God by faith, then the law and gospel still have their proper places. Proper places. And uh, um, so, if you choose the way of works, the gospel for you is null and void. Null and void. Because the gospel is pure grace. The law is always threatening, condemning, wrath, and punishment. The gospel is always promising forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. Condemnation, justification. You can't mingle them. Now, there are people that say, well, I, I believe that of course you've got to believe in Jesus Christ. But then you've got to lead a good life. And they try to mingle the two. These verses don't allow the mingling of the two. They don't allow the mingling of the two. They are exclusionary clauses that do not allow you to mingle. If you mingle the law with the gospel and your salvation is based on what you believe and then you're leading a good life, you will never have any comfort in your life whatsoever. Because you'll always be asking the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough? And the answer will always be, no, you haven't. 
but with faith. A faith given to you by God from outside of you that is worked by God and the salvation that is worked by God through Jesus Christ. It's perfect. And you can count on it and you can be sure of it. Be sure of it. Because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. All right. Let's go on. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. No promise comes through the law. Comes through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, now we've got to sort that out here. Okay, so if you're going to go the route of the law, the promise is null and void. We've said that. But then he says, through the law comes wrath. Through the law comes wrath. And, uh, or it brings wrath. That's because it condemns. It condemns. But the tough one is the second part of that. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, now think through this with me. Back to chapter 2. Paul made the case that everybody is a sinner whether they have the law, the Mosaic law, or they have the law written on their hearts. When they violate that, it's called a sin. No matter who does it, whether you've got the Mosaic law or not, it's declared sin. The word transgression is used here differently. The word transgression here is used of those who have the law. Okay? Those who have the law and therefore have an obligation to fill it and they don't. And they don't. Okay? Now it doesn't say but where there is no law there is no sin doesn't say that. What it says is, but where there is no law, there is no transgression of the law. You with me? So there's a distinction here that Paul is making between transgression and sin. There are basically three words used for sin. 
Sin is an archer's term that means missing the mark. Transgression is me saying don't cross that line. And you crossed it. See, the law, you crossed the line. Iniquity means unevenness. Okay? And all three of those words are used in the New Testament, as well as things like ungodly, etc. All right. So, if you choose the route of the law, then you're going to be, you have just excluded the gospel. The Lutheran confessors made a big point of this. No word of law or works can be in the article of justification. If it is, it's no longer the article of God's justification. Because you added something that he didn't. Pure and simple. All right. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. <coughs> I'll stop right there. Um, it depends on faith. A promise cannot be based on anything but grace. If you promise your kids you're going to take them to the movies, what do they have to bank on? They know you, and they know you act kindly towards them at times. <laughs> and the guarantee, the word for guarantee here is certainty. Certainty. It's certain. So the promise is based on grace and certainty. Grace and certainty. to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, the adherents of the law, he's talking to converted Jews. You had the law. You are adherents of the law. You believe the Mosaic law was the word of God. But you are declared right with God by faith. And the person that doesn't have the law is declared right with God by faith. So he's trying to wipe out any of these barriers that anyone would put up that somebody's excluded outside of faith. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay. God 
made Abraham the father of many nations. Did Abraham see that? No. He did not see it. He did not see it. He died before that had ever happened. But he believed in the certainty, in the grace and certainty of God's promise. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay. What's he referring to giving life to the dead? Before we answer that, let's read the next verse. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That's what he believed. That even when he was a hundred years old and as good as dead, and the words actually say, and Sarah's womb was dead, was dead. Abraham believed, hoped against hope. Now, hope used two ways there. Against hope means if you believe it's the long, a long shot that something's going to happen in your life, well, you have a little hope, but you're not that hopeful. Against hope. But the hope based on God's Word, the grace and the certainty. So he hoped against hope. Even he didn't even though he didn't think it it could possibly happen, he still believed in God who could make the dead alive. And it doesn't say that Abraham didn't have times of doubt. But it says, it's basically saying he always came back to what God promised him. He always came back. When it looked impossible, he always came back. He always came back to what God told him. Okay? No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had So, it's not saying Abraham was perfect. We know he wasn't. It's not saying that he didn't have times of doubt. But even when it was tough to believe that God was going to do this, make him the father of many nations, 
when he had no descendant, he kept reminding himself of the promise of God. And because it was made to him by grace, and it was certain, he would always come back. So then I want to come back to what I told you before. What matters is what God says, not what you perceive. And just because it may look impossible, what does God's Word say? Because that's what's going to happen. And that is reality. And Abraham believed that reality. And what's the conclusion there in verse 22? That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness through faith. Okay, we're getting close here. Any, yeah, Lois. No, he, no. Uh, when uh, Abraham had a, a, a child by Sarah's maid, we have to realize that that was the custom of the day if your wife was barren. And Sarah offered her faith. That's what you get into when you try to help God along. Is it the right thing to do? No. We view it as a lack of faith, but to them it was just the operating procedure of the day. He still believed God was going to provide him with an heir. He just didn't know how. And so, as soon as he's had uh, Ishmael, God comes to him and says, that's not him. And, and Abraham says, but he's my son, I love him. And God says, I will bless him, but he's not the heir. Because when God does it, he works the impossible. Sarah would conceive and bear a child at 90 years old. It was going to be God's way. Going to be God's way. Okay, we'll finish up chapter 4 next week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.